Welcome to Cosmic Controversy with author and veteran science journalist Bruce Dormany, host of the podcast that asks probing questions about today's aerospace and astronomy. Bruce is author of Distant Wanderers, The Search for Planets Beyond the Solar System, and a Forbes.com science contributor. Now, here's Bruce. Welcome to episode 36 of Cosmic Controversy. Today, I'm excited to welcome Bruce Bannett, Principal Investigator for the InSight Mission to Mars at NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab in Pasadena. A planetary geophysicist, his research focuses on the geological history of the planet Mars and geophysical investigations of terrestrial planets. Bannett holds a PhD in geophysics from the University of Southern California and has participated in several planetary flight instrument teams, including the Mars Orbiter Laser Altimeter, on NASA's Mars Global Surveyor, and the Imaging Radar on NASA's Magellan Spacecraft the Venus. And he served as Project Scientist for NASA's Mars Spirit and Opportunity Rovers for six years. But today we'll be talking about the Mars InSight Lander and what we really know about Mars's deep interior and its surface history over geologic time. Bannert joins us from Pittsburgh. Bruce, welcome to Cosmic Controversy. Well, I'm happy to be here, Bruce. First off, let's define some terms. How do you define planetary geophysics? Geophysics is a study of the interior of the Earth, and planetary geophysics is just generalizing that to any planet because Earth is just one of, of an infinite number of planets in the, in, in the galaxy and, and, and one of uh, either eight or nine planets in our solar system, depending on whether you want to count Pluto or not. <laughs> and how does uh, planetary geophysics differ from planetary geology. The, the key thing about geophysics is that it allows you to study things that you can't get your hands on. So, you know, geologists walk across the, the, the surface of the planet. They, they walk on the ground. They, they uh, you know, look at the rocks. They sometimes can, can uh, get down a little bit in mines, uh, uh, road cuts, things like that. But once you get down, you know, a, a little bit into the planet, you're, you're running blind. And so what geophysics does is it uses the principles of physics to probe uh, deeper down into the planet. We can use uh, uh, the principles of elasticity to look at the, at the waves that travel through the planet, the, you know, the vibrational waves, the seismic waves. We can use electromagnetism uh, to probe into the planet, uh, either using um, uh, radar, uh, which will penetrate uh, into the planet at least a little ways, and also uh, other lower frequency uh, changes in the magnetic and electric field. Uh, we can look at the magnetism of, of the core, various different things like that using physics properties to be able to see with our instruments instead of having to see with our eyes or, or feel things with our hands. So Mars is about half the size of Earth with gravity only 38% as strong as Earth's, and it's not as dense as Earth. It has a largely metallic core, a mantle, and a thick crust and rigid lithosphere. So you told me in Forbes that I'm jazzed by the idea of INSIGHT, an acronym for Interior Exploration Using Seismic Investigation, Geodesy, and Heat Transport, producing the first map of the inside of Mars. So how do you define geodesy? Well, geodesy is a, a broad field, and, and, and in general, it is you know, just mapping out sort of the internal geography of the planet and also how it behaves in terms of its rotation. And so for InSight, what we're actually doing is measuring the, the, the pole of the planet, you know, where the pole is pointing and how it wobbles. 
Um, and, and this is just sort of uh, uh, allowing us to look at the dynamics of the planet, you know, how it's, how it's moving through its orbit. And uh, you said you were keen to gather data that would help researchers uh, determine the locations of clear boundaries between Mars's crust, mantle, and core, while also delineating each component's composition and temperatures. What do we really know about Mars's geophysics at this point? Before InSight was launched, we knew just the, the very most fuzzy outlines. We knew that the core was something between, you know, maybe 1,400 kilometers and 2,000 kilometers, which is a pretty big range of, of, of sizes. Um, the crust uh, could have been anywhere from uh, 25 kilometers thick to over 100 kilometers thick. We knew that the mantle of Mars was probably close to the mantle uh, composition of the Earth, uh, mostly uh, sort of olivines and pyroxenes with uh, uh, a range of possible compositions in terms of the iron or magnesium content of those of those minerals. But um, in terms of actually being able to understand how the planet formed and how it evolved over time, those kinds of fuzzy bounds on, on those properties really aren't enough for us to really understand the processes. And so that's why I was so excited about, you know, InSight going to Mars and, and, and actually nailing down, you know, where these boundaries are, just how thick the crust is, how big the core is, and something about the, the, the detailed composition of the mantle. Because then we can use that information to uh, refine our, our mathematical and physical models of the, of the formation of the planet Mars and then how it evolved from its, its early beginnings back four and a half billion years ago to today. And beyond that, be able to then apply those same models, those same principles uh, back to the Earth, for which we have very little information about the, the earliest processes. And the absence of a magnetic field leads to the conclusion uh, that Mars's core is what? Well, we now believe that Mars's core is actually uh, molten iron, and that could have uh, uh, supported magnetic field. But in addition to being liquid, the core actually has to be uh, in, in a turbulent condition, we have to actually have, you know, eddies, places where the, 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 the flow of the core can basically kind of turn in circles because that's what creates a magnetic field. And the way we usually do that, well, the way we think that that happens on the Earth is by thermal convection. So the, the hotter material deep in the core rises because it's hot. When it gets to the surface, it cools down and then sinks again and then sort of, sort of rolls over and over again. Uh, we think that the heat doesn't leave the Mars's core as as easily. We think that the, the mantle insulates the core more, and so it doesn't convect as much. And so we think that's why it doesn't set up these circular uh, convection cells that are needed to create the magnetic field. Even in the last decade, the paradigm has shifted on the understanding of Mars's geophysics. Tell us a bit about that. It's shifted a lot just in the last few years, just from insight alone. Uh, we have gotten some orbital information, uh, mostly from uh, the Mars Reconnaissance Orbit Orbiter, MRO, and Odyssey, by looking at the gravity field and how the gravity field actually uh, changes with time slightly as the planet flexes as it goes around the sun. And by looking at that, that flexure in detail, um, that has indicated to us that the, that the core of Mars is almost certainly liquid. And uh, that's because... You know, it's, it's like uh, the difference between a tennis ball and a handball, you know, a solid rubber handball is much harder and you just can't flex it. But you can take a tennis ball and squeeze it because it's because it's hollow. Uh, and the, the, the liquid filled center of a planet is actually more squeezable 
than a, a solid planet would be. Uh, and Insight's been able to verify that by looking at um, just the, the tidal response of Mars. You know, as the moon Phobos goes around, it actually flexes the, the planet. It, it, it raises a tide in the solid planet, uh, much like the, the, the ocean tide on the Earth, but much smaller, of course. Um, and we can measure the uh, amount of that tide uh, and the gravitational effect of that tide as the, the planet bulges and then, then squeezes down uh, from the seismometer, which is, is, is measuring the, the force of gravity. And by doing that, we're able to tell that the liquid, that the core of Mars is liquid. And so that is now uh, a known fact, thanks to these uh, measurements from the orbital satellites and from InSight. And so what you're saying is the gravitational effect of the of Phobos as it orbits Mars has a, a tidal effect, but not a tidal effect as a way we know it here on Earth. It is it's similar, uh, but here on Earth, when, we, when people use, just to be clear for the listener, the people, when we hear tides, we automatically think of, of, of the liquid oceans. And uh, obviously, Mars no longer has liquid oceans, or if, if it ever had them. So explain what you mean by tidal in this context when you're talking about a cold, dry planet. You know, on, on, on Earth, the, the reason why the, the, the oceans rise and then fall due to the tides is because of the gravitational attraction of the moon. Well, the moon is also pulling on the solid part of the, of the Earth. And so when the moon goes overhead and, and uh, you see the, the, the oceans swell up with the tide, the Earth is actually rising a little bit too under your feet, but you just can't notice it because, you know, you don't have anything to reference it against. Um, we measure that same, what we call the solid tide on Mars. And so it's a, it's a, the planet just gets pulled up a little bit, a little bit of a bulge as the moon passes overhead. On Mars, it's just a little bit less than a centimeter, you know, less than a half an inch. But uh, we can measure uh, that from, the, from our seismometer. So what is this, uh, what's the current situation with the InSight lander? It has uh, a few prime instruments, maybe three, uh, a thermal heat sensor or the mole instrument that was going to measure thermal heat from the deep interior, a magnetometer, and a seismometer. Um, those, those are our primary seismic, uh, I'm sorry, primary geophysical instruments. There is one other, um, it's not exactly an instrument, but it's, a, it's, it's one of our components, which is the radio system that uh, communicates directly with Earth. And we actually use that radio system to do the geodesy that I was talking about. As I reported in Forbes, NASA has given up on the mole being able to burrow, burrow beneath the surface. And you wrote me an email prior to taping that NASA doesn't know for certain why the mole couldn't penetrate. We will probably be investigating this for some time, you told me. But we believe that it wasn't a matter of the regolith being too hard or rigid, but rather that the mole couldn't get traction, so to speak. Well, the way the mole is supposed to work is it has a hammer on the inside. And you know, um, you know from basic physics that you know, every action has an equal and opposite reaction. So if, if, if you just have a, 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 uh, something sitting on a table that has a, has a, a hammer inside of it, it's just going to, you know, pop back and forth and it won't ever go anywhere. Um, but the way the mole is designed is it gets down into the, into the soil. And when the hammer comes down inside, it pushes it quickly down into the soil. And then it has dampers on the inside that, that uh, slow the hammer down as it's going backwards. And so that allows the soil to kind of grip the mole. And so it doesn't go back as far as it went down. So every time the hammer hits, it's like uh, taking, you know, two steps forward and one step back. 
but you have to have the friction from the soil uh, keeping the, the mold from rebounding. And what we believe is that, first of all, the, the soil uh, in, the, in the top few inches, the top maybe six or eight inches of, 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 uh, of the area that we're in, uh, is, was kind of uh, what we call partially cemented. So it's like, it's like a dirt clod. You know, the, the, the grains of soil stick together. You can crumble them if you squeeze it in your hands. Uh, but when you do that, you, you're, you end up with sort of a, a hard surface, like a, a, a little cliff surface, and the mole ends up sitting in a hole that has some dirt down in the bottom of it, but it's kind of rattling back and forth without actually having dirt all the way against its sides all the way down. And we believe that that's the main reason why the, the mole wasn't able to, to keep on making progress. Uh, we were able to, when it was uh, still sticking out of the ground, we were able to push on the back of it very gently and it went down just fine, you know, when we could keep it from rebounding. But as soon as we uh, took that pressure off of it, it would just, it was just bouncing back and forth without enough uh, uh, frictional uh, resistance to keep it from, from uh, popping back as far as it went down. So at this point, you don't think it was due to subsurface rocks because the site uh, at the Elysium Planitia, which is a broad equatorial volcanic plain, was selected in part because it has so few visible rocks, right? So that would imply few large subsurface rocks. That's right. And like I said, you know, we were just pushing really very gently with our robotic arm on the on the back end of the mole. And as long as we had that arm there to keep it from popping back, it was making progress down in the surface. You know, we, we it originally stalled out with about, you know, eight inches of, of mole sticking out of the, the surface. And we were able to get it all the way down you know, down to the, the surface of the ground and even a little bit below it because there was a, a little bit of a hole around it. Um, but even though we, we got it down about an inch below the surface and then piled the dirt on top of it and, and then put the mole on the top, I mean, put the arm on the top of the, of, of the soil, once we got it down that far, it wouldn't go any further. And so if it was a rock, I don't think we would have gotten down as far as we did. So a nature uh, geoscience paper generated actually from InSight data noted that there are magnetized rocks beneath the surface within some 150 kilometers of the InSight landing site that are consistent with a past dynamo with Earth-like strength. Geological mapping and InSight seismic data suggests that much or all of the magnetization sources are carried in basement rocks, which are at least 3.9 billion years old. Uh, what is a basement rock, and when did Mars have a global magnetic field? Well, the basement rock just means that's the sort of the unbroken rock underneath uh, underneath the surface. So, you know, that's the the, the main hard material that that uh, constitutes our crust. Uh, on Mars, the the uh, the upper uh, probably even three to five kilometers are pretty ba- badly you know fractured by impact you know impacts of of meteorites and asteroids over the billions of years. On Earth, these fractures all get healed up by the, the action of, of water and, and heat, but we believe on Mars that they, they don't get healed. But so down below this fractured zone, there's um, what we call the basement rocks, which are you know unaffected by that, and they're uh, still in place uh, as, as they were created back when the, the crust was formed in that area. So however, remnant magnetism is present in the southern highlands of Mars, indicating an early magnetic dynamo which produce a global magnetic field. Is uh, this still the case? Yeah, we, we, we really believe that's the case um, from, from orbital mapping. Uh, we've had magnetometers on, on orbiters, on, on Mars Global Surveyor and on MAVEN, 
that have mapped out magnetic fields uh, around Mars. And they're not like the Earth's magnetic field, which is like a giant dipole, like, like a giant bar magnet with uh, a North Pole and a South Pole. What they see is just small variations, uh, you know, up and down all over the planet. And uh, we believe that this is due to rocks in the crust that are magnetized. And that typically happens on the Earth when you have a, a molten rock, uh, some lava that comes up. And as it cools in, in its liquid state, all the little magnetic grains within that material as it cools uh, line themselves up with uh, a, a magnetic field that's being produced from the outside, for example, by uh, a core-produced dipole field. And so um, when that dipole field goes away, the, the small magnetization from these rocks with all the little mag magnetic domains uh, lined up uh, still remains. You told me that you hope that insight would help us understand why Mars doesn't have a global magnetic field today. Has it enabled that yet? We still are working on that. We're just, we just uh, ha are, are now finally being able to uh, determine what the size of the core is on Mars. Um, we have some very preliminary results that, that we haven't uh, published quite yet. We're still working to refine them. Once we have that size and the fact that we now know the, uh, the um the fact that the, the core is liquid, uh, once we know the size, we'll be able to calculate what the density is. And with that density, we'll be able to, to, to figure out what the composition is. Because if it's pure iron, it'll be one density. But if it has other elements mixed in, like sulfur or, or, or even oxygen, uh, that will change the density of the core. It'll make it uh, a little bit lighter. Um, and those things are all important in understanding what the history of the core is, um, how what temperature it will melt at because these extra elements can change the melting point of the core, just like putting salt uh, on ice will change the melting point of ice. Uh, and it, it has an effect on the uh, properties which cause the, the, the core to convect, as I was talking about before, where core convection is a really important component of understanding uh, the, the um, production of a magnetic field. And we're gonna, we need to be able to extrapolate those properties back in time to understand when the, the properties were, were uh, right for uh, uh, the, the formation of a magnetic field and when they become unable to support a magnetic field. Once we have these numbers nailed down, then we'll be able to start looking at our, our historical models for how the, the core had evolved. And then we'll be able to understand you know, why the core uh, had a magnetic field early on, and when in Mars's past that magnetic field went away. Just as an aside, what is the significance of the fact that we thought that Mars had a metallic core early on in our scientific history, and now with newer data, we think it has a liquid core? What's the significance of that difference? Well, the, the significance of that is is really key to the the uh, evolution of the entire planet. I mean, the core is very important in understanding the amount of heat coming out of the planet, the amount of heat being produced in the planet. And the heat that comes out of the planet is what drives all of our geological processes. On the Earth, it drives plate tectonics, which is the, the most important large-scale process on the Earth. Um, we don't see any plate tectonics on Mars, but still, the, the, the huge volcanoes that we see, the plateaus and valleys, those are all formed by the, the action of heat. That's what, what uh, drives the forces that have uh, uh, moved and fractured the crust on Mars. So 
understanding this whole heat engine of the planet is key to understanding how the planet evolves and the cores is a is a vital part of that and a plate tectonics simply is the theory that the that the earth has a lithosphere and you have these giant crustal plates all over the globe which move in on a liquid lithosphere explain it for us well i mean you you you've, you've gotten the, the the basic principles of plate tectonics just fine i mean what what happens is that you know these plates move around and as they pull apart from each other uh, material comes up from the mantle of you know magma comes up and it cools and it forms new new crust and then uh, where they come together uh, one plate will will uh, they'll they'll buckle and one plate will get squeezed underneath the other go back down into the mantle of the earth and get get remelted and reingested into the mantle and so uh, meanwhile as these plates are moving around of course where they come together um, they're scraping and that's what causes most of the earthquakes on the earth is the the moving of one plate past another. And so this is actually the way that, that the Earth loses most of its heat. Most of the heat is, is lost by uh, the material rising from the hot mantle, cooling in the crust. Uh, that crust then radiates that heat out to space. And then the colder crust gets pulled down into the mantle and you know starts cooling off the mantle. And so this is, again, it, it's, it's like a heat engine. It's just like the piston in your car. Is the, the gas you know burns, uh, burns hot. It pushes the piston down. And then as the gas cools and gets pushed out, you know, the piston comes back up again. And that's the same kind of cycle on a hugely larger scale that happens on the Earth. I did an article, a feature article, uh, several years ago for Sky and Telescope on plate tectonics. Without plate tectonics, you arguably would not have a complex life or sentient life like our own. Because the plate tectonics played such a great role on Earth in recycling carbon in our atmosphere we don't really know for certain if venus ever had plate tectonics we don't think it did but because the planet was unable to recycle its carbon dioxide then it became a runaway greenhouse and something similar could have would have happened on earth if we didn't have plate tectonics or would happen on earth is that right yeah that's 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 basically true i mean the the, the thing is that that uh the the carbon can get you know, uh, trapped in rocks. Basically, at the, at the bottom of the ocean, uh, the carbon that's that can rain down to the bottom and get turned into uh, rocks like limestone uh, or marble, and um, it, that can that can pull the carbon out out of the atmosphere. And then, if if you don't have plate tectonics, pretty much, eventually, all the carbon gets gets pulled out, and the the, the atmosphere gets uh, dominated by by uh, uh, oxygen and sulfur, but with plate tectonics and with these plates getting, you know, pulled underneath each other back down into the mantle, uh, when it's remelted down in the mantle, the the light elements like carbon uh, bubble back up to the surface uh, through volcanic vents and and go back into the atmosphere. So we have the the carbon being you know kept in kept in circulation, and 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 the CO two, uh, of course, is, is is actually vital to life. If we had no no CO two. Uh, we wouldn't have the, the the basic carbon building blocks for, you know, simple life that that then can be, you know, uh, eventually evolve into the more complex life forms. And so, being able to keep that carbon in in circulation is really key to. We believe it's really key to the the existence of life on Earth. And so, what is your gut uh, sense about whether Mars ever had plate tectonics? Do you think it ever had plate tectonics for like the first one hundred million years? And then it disappeared for whatever reason because it lost its water. Maybe that had an impact on it. Well, that's a great question. Um, 
it's really hard to see back in that, that first, you know, 100 million years or so. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, we, we've got good geologic evidence going back about to about, oh, probably two or 300 million years after Mars's formation. And, you know, at that point, the, the crust was and the lithosphere was stable enough uh, uh, to, to retain uh, evidence. And, and so we have pretty good evidence going back really close. But that those first, you know, few hundred million years, even the few first few tens of millions of years are really critical uh, in, in, in a planet's uh, evolution and, and what happens uh, in those, the, that, that earliest uh, time period uh, when the, the core forms during that time, the crust forms during that time. And once you have those basic building blocks of the planet in place, um, the rest of its evolution is kind of determined. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's kind of like, you know, you know, once once you've gotten through grade school and high school, you're 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 pretty much the person you're going to be for the rest of your life. You you can change some, but uh, usually the, the 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 cast is is, is pretty well set by then. That, planets are the same. It's it's really the early stuff that that that's key to, to how the the planet's going to evolve. That, Honestly, I don't know what's I, I don't know whether there was plate tectonics in the first uh, hundred million years or so. That's a that's a great question. And and as we as as we look at you know the 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 building blocks of Mars and, and as insight, you know, really starts to def- re- refine those, those values of the, the, the thickness of the crust and the size of the core, we'll be able to go back and run our simulations. And that should actually tell us, uh, or, or at least give us some idea of the likelihood of, of early plate tectonics. And uh, as we understand Mars today, it's a one plate uh, system. No, no, That's no crustal plates as we know them on earth. Some researchers make the argument that, there are two keys to the development of intelligent life on any given Earth-like planet. And number one, probably plate tectonics, or some sort of ability to recycle the atmosphere. Even though we ne- you might need carbon dioxide in your atmosphere, you don't need it in too large a quantities, okay? And, and then the second thing that you need is a global magnetic field to protect you from the ravages of the solar wind stripping your atmosphere is what happened on Mars, right? Right. So if you had to name two things for exoplanetary searchers or researchers looking for extant life, if if they could characterize a nearby Earth-like planet and determine it, it had a magnetic field and plate tectonics, that would be pretty good news, right? I think so. I mean, that, that I, like you said, I, I, I think that most geophysicists would, would agree that those two things are, are definitely prerequisites for life being able to, to uh, get a, a toehold on a planet. One of the goals of InSight was to determine whether, whether Mars' interior is radically different from Earth or our own moon. Well, I, uh, radically different is, is is a relative term. I mean, we we, we do think <laughs> okay. that the uh, that the interiors of all the planets are basically the same, but the devil's in the details. I mean, really, what we're 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 looking at is relatively small changes on this on on a planetary scale. But for example, on on the Earth, uh, the thickness of the crust on on the Earth is, on average, about uh, twenty kilometers or so, uh, and on Mars. We're thinking that it might be, you know, 30 or 40 kilometers, uh, which doesn't sound like a, a lot different when you think about the, you know, the planet being thousands of kilometers in radius. But even a small difference like that can have a, a, a large difference in, in the way that, that things behave. And, and so, you know, we have to make some fairly detailed measurements in order to, to, to find the, the changes that are critical in understanding how the two planets might 
takes such divergent paths in terms of of the of, of the way that the surface environment is that, that that might you know support or not support life. So as we tape this uh, episode, we're two weeks away from the landing of the Perseverance rover. And you know very well about rovers uh, because you were actually the project scientist for Spirit and Opportunity, which were fantastic rovers for six years, I believe. Will the Perseverance rover change what we know about Martian geophysics? It's not going to be uh, very, very uh, uh, intensely focused on, on geophysics. Uh, you know, when we send robots to Mars, we have to be very, you know, particular about the, the instruments they carry. I mean, we, we just can't take, you know, the entire school bus full of, you know, every instrument that, that we would like. <laughs> okay. And so each mission tends to focus on, you know, one particular aspect of, of the planet. And so, for example, you know, InSight is very focused on the geophysics with our seismometer and our magnetometer and our heat flow probe, whereas, you know, Perseverance has, a, has some a, a different uh, a goal in mind. It's it's really wanting to look at, you know, the, the the history of the possibility of life on Mars. And the best way to do that, as scientists have, have determined, would be to actually bring back rocks uh, that were deposited during the times of uh, possibly uh, uh, an environment early in Mars's history that that could have supported life. And so, Perseverance's uh, goal is to to look around. And with its 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 various uh, surface sensing instruments, its uh, uh, cameras and spectrometers, and find rocks that are likely to to harbor evidence of life, if there was ever life uh, in this area. And you know, life was you know, evidence of life can be found on Earth in terms of fossils, uh, and and in terms of certain chemical characteristics of the rocks uh, as they are formed. Usually, sedimentary uh, rocks that were formed, you know. Uh, during the time that that life was was present, and we want to try to do the same thing on Mars, and the best way to do that is to bring those rocks back to Earth. And so, Perseverance is going to be gathering up rocks and putting them in some um, uh, sealed up containers that hopefully will be able to go back in maybe ten years' time and grab them with a sample return mission and bring them back to Earth. So, it's going to tell us a lot about Mars's environment. And those rocks will actually also help us as geophysicists understand the interior of Mars because the chemistry of those rocks is, is something that also will tell us about the composition of, of the, the deep interior of the planet. So in that sense, in an indirect way, it's going to give us uh, some, of the, some very complementary information to that that we're getting with InSight. So what has the, uh, the Curiosity rover, which has been operational on, on the surface for about eight years, told us already about Mars's geophysics, if anything. Well, again, you know, Curiosity was focused on the ancient environment of, of Mars's surface. And so we really haven't gotten much in the way of geophysical information from Curiosity, but we've gotten a lot of information about uh, the environment of Mars uh, two, three billion years ago when it was much warmer and wetter uh, than, than it is today. Uh, you know, Curiosity has some, some really amazing instruments to sort of pull apart those rocks, look at the kinds of, uh, of, of chemi- chemi- chemistry of the minerals in those rocks and understand, you know, the, the temperature conditions, the uh, hydrous conditions under which they were formed. And, and since Curiosity landed in, in an ancient uh, uh, lake bed and is now, you know, sort of 
uh, driving up into the, the the shallower and shallower portions of the, that that old ancient lake as it as it goes higher and higher on Mount Sharp. It's telling it, it's told us a lot about the uh, the history of Mars's surface, and that's again, you know, as as you uh, put that together with the uh, information that we're getting about the deep interior, we're starting to get sort of a complete picture of, of Mars as a planet. And of course, uh, NASA's Maven orbiter is still operational and has, has been a wellspring of uh, of data that enabled us to see how drastically Mars lost its atmosphere and, and water over geologic time. Basically, because it had no global magnetic field, the sun just literally stripped the the planet like a locust almost. I mean. Am I being overly dramatic? <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's that's pretty pretty accurate, actually. <laughs> okay, and so what did that teach? What did that tell you about the geophysics of Mars's interior, the Maven mission? Well, the Maven mission has a a, a really key instrument for us, which is is a magnetometer, and so um, we are able to measure the magnetic field really precisely uh, at 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 the Insight's landing site. But it's only one point on the planet. And what MAVEN does is it measures the magnetic field as it orbits around the planet. And so we can look at the, the variation of the magnetic field um, with position. So when we see variations of the magnetic field at InSight, you know, the magnetic field gets a little bit stronger, a little bit weaker. Uh, it varies all the time. That's not from what's going on inside the planet. Um, that's from what's going on in the ionosphere of Mars with the, all the, the currents of ions that are, that are interacting with the solar wind. And so while we're seeing these variations, um, MAVEN is, is, uh, is, is flying through the, the ionosphere and looking at the variations with, with location. And so we're, we're, being, we're able to get a, a four-dimensional view, in, in, in some sense, of the magnetic field. You know, we have uh, the, the three dimensions of space and one dimension of time. So uh, Insight kind of uh, provides the, the, the timing and Maven provides the, the distribution in, in, in position. And by taking those two things, we're able to look at how the magnetic field variation in the ionosphere, uh, how those magnetic waves penetrate down into the surface of the planet. And then we can measure sort of the planet's uh, magnetic properties as we watch those magnetic waves sort of uh, propagate through the upper layers of the planet. And that tells us something about the composition and the temperature of the materials underneath InSight, uh, down tens or even hundreds of kilometers. So let's talk about the uh, the Martian geology, uh, the surface geology, which is really extraordinary. Mars appears divisible into two main regions, the northern low plains and the southern cratered highlands. And then superimposed on these regions are the Tharsis and Elysium bulges, which are high-standing volcanic areas. High, the highest point on Mars is Olympus Mons, a huge shield volcano about 16 miles high and 370 miles across, the largest known volcano in the solar system. Is that still right? That's still correct, yeah, as far as I, <laughs> as far as I know. <laughs> so we haven't found one on Enceladus yet, right? Okay. Not bigger than that. So just tell us, what enables Mars to have such a huge volcano like that? Well, we believe it's, it's, it's uh, tied to the, to, to the absence of plate tectonics. So, so on the Earth, first of all, the, you know, the, as the plates are moving around, uh, if you have a hot spot in the mantle that's, that's melting rocks and, and sending them up, um, the, the, the surface plate is moving past that. And so 
um, you'll get a, a volcano for a while, but eventually that hot spot is has uh, or the crust has moved away from there, and you the, the the magma starts coming up at a new location, and so you get a situation like the Hawaiian Islands where you have uh, the main island of Hawaii is is a, an active volcano today, and then if you go you know next door you've got Oahu, which is uh, which is a little bit smaller because but it still uh, was a, a, a volcanic island. It's just not active anymore, and it's slowly uh, eroding away and 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 sinking down into the to, into the, the the ocean. And you get smaller and smaller islands as you go up the chain. And each of those islands at one time was over this hot spot that's creating the the the, the Hawaiian volcanoes. And so, if you had the this, this the one spot sitting over that same place for uh, a billion years, you can uh, develop a, a larger volcano just over time. Uh, the other reason is that with the thicker lithosphere on Mars, you actually get the magma coming up from deeper. And it's a little bit, seems a little bit contradictory, but it turns out that the deeper the magma is formed, the higher it can be be uh, elevated above the surface. It's, it's sort of like, you know, you have that much more pressure pushing the, the magma up, and so you can actually create a taller volcano. And so we, we believe that the that the, the height of the Martian volcanoes is actually one of the pieces of evidence for a, a, a thicker lithosphere. And so the uh, on Earth, the height, but not we don't really have anything that would match that height, but vol, uh, the Yellowstone supervolcano would be what, in terms of diameter? Would it be a couple of hundred miles? Yellowstone caldera, I think, is, yeah, about three or 400 uh, kilometers across. So, so, yeah, a couple of hundred, two, 300 miles. So uh, Olympus Mons has a, has a diameter of about 370 miles. So the, the Yellowstone supervolcano uh, is basically the closest thing that Earth has to compare, even in the diameter, compared to this Olympus Mons. I mean, so Olympus Mons is pretty incredible. So Mars is Valles Marineris is the largest and deepest known canyon in our solar system. It extends more than 2,500 miles and has three to six miles of relief from floors to tops of surrounding plateaus. And it's near the equator. So how did the, the Valles Marineris form and why do you think it's the largest and deepest such canyon thus far known in the solar system? Well, Valles Marineris uh, is located on the, 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 the flanks or the, the edges of what we call the Tharsis Plateau. And the Tharsis Plateau is, is, is a huge uh, highland area on Mars. It, it, it rises about, you know, four or five miles high uh, from the sort of the, the average, you know, Martian surface. Uh, and it's, all, it's the size of the entire United States. I mean, it, it's, it's a huge feature. Uh, you can think of it almost like it's it's almost like a volcano. It really is like a, a, a huge uh, stack of, of volcanic flows, uh, and and so this uh, big plateau is just like a big weight on the on the crust of Mars, and then and so it pushes down on the crust, squeezes it down and out, and as it does that, it stretches the edges, and so uh, Valles Marineris is is almost like a tear in the crust of Mars. Uh, caused by this huge weight of the Tharsis Plateau. What do we learn from the from Insight thus far, even though it's been hamstrung by this faulty m- mole probe? Well, we still have our 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 main data set. The the really primary data set is the, the seismic data, and and that's 
been key to understanding the inside of Mars. Uh, you know, when, when there's a, a Mars quake that, that shakes the planet, uh, it sends out vibrational waves, you know, uh, they're like sound waves that go through the solid, solid rock. And as those sound waves go through the planet, they're actually affected by the material that they move through. And when we, they come back up to the surface and we measure those wiggles, those, those motions on our seismograph, we can then analyze the shapes of those signals, the shapes of those waves, and pull out a lot of the information uh, that they picked up along their path. And so seismology, uh, the, the, the study of seismograms, is actually the, the most uh, uh, important tool that we've ever used uh, on the Earth to understand the inside of the Earth. And now we're, we're applying that same method to Mars. And so this, this seismic experiment has been going really well. And that's, that was really the, the key instrument of our mission. And you've uh, um, already already detected over 480 Mars quakes, right? That's right. I mean, as of uh, as of yesterday, when last time I looked, we had 485 Mars quakes uh, cataloged in, in in our in our uh, database. That's an incredible number of quakes uh, for a two year mission. Yeah. Well, most of them are very small quakes. Um, you know, there's obviously there's always more small quakes than there are large quakes. But uh, we've been running a, a, around the clock, uh, you know, for uh, more than more than two Earth years now, a little bit more than a Mars year, and uh, that's that's been a, a really good haul. And out of, out of those 485 quakes, we have probably 40 of them that, that are really useful for for probing deep into the planet. You know, sort of the bigger the quake, the deeper we can use it to to uh, probe the planet. And so we're getting a really really uh, incredible database to. Uh, to 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 look down inside of Mars. How do the, how does the number of quakes over that two year period compare to what you would get on Earth normally? Uh, we, Mars is much less active than the Earth. Um, is that right? We we we've been able to to show that um, it's probably about a few thousand times less active than the Earth. So there's a few thousand times fewer uh, quakes on Mars than there than there are on the Earth. Um, but interestingly, if you take away the plate boundaries and just look at quakes that, have, that, that happen uh, in the middle of plates, um, you know, and we do have those kinds of quakes on, on the Earth, um, it's not that much less. It's, it's uh, pretty close to what we have on the Earth, maybe a, a couple of times less active than what we call intraplate seismicity on the Earth. And, and it is also, it's, it's quite a bit more active than the moon. You know, we had the seismometers on the moon during the Apollo program for about seven years. And uh, the moon, uh, those, those seismometers picked up a lot of quakes as well. Um, but they, the, the, the activity of the moon we can see now is, is uh, probably a couple hundred times uh, less active than, than Mars. So Mars is kind of where you'd expect, uh, you know, in the spectrum of, you know, uh, smaller, colder planets and, and, and larger, warmer planets. And you mentioned at the top of the show that uh, the InSight radio science experiment will uh, precisely measure the lander's location to track just how much Mars wobbles in its orbit around the sun. So what will that tell us? Well, that's, that's, that's actually a really important experiment as well. And, and most people don't, don't realize it. But uh, the, if you've seen those, those giant dishes of the deep space network that, uh, yep. that are out in the desert in California and in Australia and Spain, right. uh, we use those dishes to be able to communicate across you know, hundreds of millions of kilometers of space. But 
they have another uh, ability, and that is to actually track the position of the, the spacecraft or the position of the radio on the spacecraft to an incredibly accurate degree. Um, at, at Mars, the, the, the Deep Space Network of, of NASA can actually figure out where that spacecraft is within about, oh, eight or 10 inches. The, yeah, eight or 10 inches, 150 million kilometers away. And, and that's, that's an incredible technical feat. So we, we uh, measure that, that location and, and we actually measure it for about an hour continuously as, as we uh, maintain this, this radio link. And during that hour, of course, Mars has rotated. And, you know, it's rotated about 1 24th of its uh, time way around its axis since it's about a 24 and a half hour uh, period. And so as it rotates, um, InSight goes through a little bit of an arc. You know, it's, it's just following the circle that, that's formed as it goes around and around the planet. And we can take that little piece of a circle and figure out where the rotation axis is. So that's the North Pole of Mars. And we can... Um, measure that um, every day for about an hour, and we can watch that pole actually wobble around, okay? So it wobbles, oh, probably a few tens of meters. So, you know, it's, it's a pretty tiny wobble compared to a, a, a 6,000-kilometer diameter planet, but we can actually measure that wobble pretty precisely, and the size of that wobble and the speed of that wobble is tied to the size of Mars's core and the mass of Mars's core. So the, the bigger and the, the denser it is, the slower that wobble is going to be and the larger it's going to be. And so by measuring that wobble, that actually can give us very strong bounds on the size and the, the, the composition of the core. So earlier in the program when I was talking about, you know, figuring out how big the core is and what it's made out of, it's really this radio tracking experiment uh, which we call RISE, uh, that is giving us most of that information. Any idea why Mars and Earth are so different in size when compared to Venus and Earth, which are almost about the same size in terms of the radius? Well, I think that the, 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 the leading theory right now is that, that uh, Jupiter, which got a, a, a little bit of a head start on the, on, on the planetary formation process, uh, sort of grew and its gravitational field sort of vacuumed up a lot of the material in that part of the solar system. So Mars is sort of a next door neighbor to Jupiter. And um, we think that Jupiter probably uh, took, a, took, took a lot of the, uh, the material that otherwise would have been uh, agglomerated into Mars. What should the planetary geophysics community be doing to better understand Mars than it isn't? Well, the, the InSight mission is, is a really great first step. Um, but as, as you probably know, on, on the Earth, we have large networks of seismometers. And uh, the, the science that you can do with multiple seismometers at different locations is very, very much uh, more precise and, and, uh, and accurate than, than a single seismometer can be. You, know, you can triangulate on, on the, the, the quake location. You can actually start doing uh, a tomography, like like a CAT scan, with different uh, 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 paths through the planet, uh, sensing different zones and things like that. And so, what we really would like to get on Mars as geophysicists is uh, half a dozen or a dozen seismometers at different locations, and that would you know really multiply our our understanding of, of the inside of the planet. So, what puzzles you most about Mars? 
we're just starting to to to, to scratch the surface, you know, figuratively uh, of Mars. And and I, I've been I've been curious, you know, most of my professional career about you know what causes the that that that, that big Tharsis plateau that that you were uh, that we were talking about earlier. Um, that's a, a very um, unique feature that, that we don't really see anywhere in the solar system. And if you figure out, you know, how much magma it would take to make a, a feature like that, you would have to melt uh, a, a large fraction of, of Mars's mantle and actually change the composition of the entire mantle. And and how that how that process worked has always always you know fascinated me. You know how you can can um, uh, involve such a large part of the interior of the planet in building up a surface feature like that. I think that has to be, you know, one of the, the um, sort of driving features in, in Mars's geologic history. And that's, that's the thing that I really want, would like to, to try to understand, you know, when, once we know sort of the, the average structure of Mars, now start to, to see how, you know, some of these other features like the Tharsis Plateau, like Elysium, uh, plen- like the Elysium uh, bulge, and like the big volcanoes, how those fit into the the overall uh, evolution of the planet. That's that's the thing that 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 really you know that that really you know drives my curiosity. So when you look up at a clear sky and you see Mars from your own backyard, what goes through your head? Uh, I look at I look up at Mars and I and I think about you know this this silver and, and gold piece of machinery that, you know, I saw, you know, being built up at, at Lockheed Martin in Denver and this uh, little gold color, you know, ball that's, that, that contains a seismometer that I spent so much time with working with my colleagues in, in Paris and in, in, uh, in Zurich and in London and thinking, you know, in that little kind of yellowish red spot, that's where that's where that machine is. That's the machine that that I actually touched and I actually helped uh, send on its way. And it's just, I I just get goosebumps every time I think about it. Bruce, uh, do you have a way that listeners can contact you on social media or via email if they want to comment or learn more? Um, well, um, Insight has a has a Facebook page and has a, a, a Twitter feed and. I really encourage people to, to, to follow those. Um, we also have a website where we uh, put all of our latest um, uh, photos. Actually, the images that Insight takes, we usually take about you know, a couple of dozen pictures every week, and all those images go straight to the website before the scientists even look at them. So you know, if, if, a, if an alien ever walks in front of Insight, um, <laughs> it'll be up there on the web before, before any of the, any of the, the, the you know, uh, Conspiracy people, you know, are, are there to take it down. So, you know, you, you, you got a chance to see it as it happens. Well, you've made my day with that. Anyway, uh, as always, please follow Cosmic Controversy at brucedormany.podbean.com or at bdormany on my Twitter feed. Bruce Bannert, thanks so much for helping us better understand Mars's geophysics. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thanks for being a part of the podcast today. This has been Cosmic Controversy with Bruce Dormany. Please follow Bruce on Facebook, on Twitter at bdormany, or his regular posts on Forbes.com. Until next time, clear skies. Music provided by RFM. <laughs>